Welcome back to my relaxing literature podcast. Tonight we're continuing our reading of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, and we are currently on part four, chapter five. The author, at his master's command, informs him of the state of England, the causes of war among the princes of Europe. The author begins to explain the English constitution. The reader may please to observe that the following extract of many conversations I had with my master contains a summary of the most material points which were discoursed at several times for above two years. His honor, often desiring fuller satisfaction, as I farther improved the honium tongue. I laid before him, as well as I could, the whole state of Europe. I discoursed of trade and manufactures, of arts and sciences, and the answers I gave to all the questions he made as they arose upon several subjects were a fund of conversation not to be exhausted. But I shall here only set down the substance of what passed between us concerning my own country, reducing it in order as well as I can, without any regard to time or other circumstances, while I strictly adhere to truth. My only concern is I shall hardly be able to do justice to my master's arguments and expressions, which must needs suffer by my wanted capacity, as well as by a translation into our barbarous English. In obedience, therefore, to his honor's commands, I related to him the revolution under the Prince of Orange, the long war with France, entered into by said prince, and renewed by his successor, the present queen, wherein the greatest powers of Christendom were engaged, and which still continued. I computed at his request that about a million of yahoos might have been killed in the whole progress of it, and perhaps a hundred or more cities taken, and five times as many ships burnt or sunk. He asked me what were the usual causes or motives that made one country go to war with another. I answered they were innumerable but I should only mention a few of the chief. Sometimes the ambition of princes, who never think they have land or people enough to govern, sometimes the corruption of ministers, who engage their master in war in order to stifle or divert the clamor of the subjects against the evil administration. Difference in opinions has cost many millions of lives. For instance, whether flesh be bread or bread be flesh, whether the juice of a certain berry be blood or wine, whether whistling be a vice or a virtue, whether it be better to kiss a post or throw it into the fire, what is the best color for a coat, whether black, white, red, or gray, and whether it should be long or short, narrow or wide, dirty or clean, with many more. Neither are any wars so furious and bloody, or of so long a continuance as those occasioned by difference in opinion, especially if it be in things indifferent. Sometimes the quarrel between two princes is to decide which of them shall dispossess a third of his dominions, where neither of them pretend to any right. Sometimes one prince quarrels with another for fear the other should quarrel with him. Sometimes a war is entered upon because the enemy is too strong and sometimes because he is too weak. Sometimes our neighbors want the things which we have, or have the things which we want, and we both fight, 
till they take ours or give us theirs. It is a very justifiable cause of a war to invade a country after the people have been wasted by famine, destroyed by pestilence, or embroiled by factions among themselves. It is justifiable to enter into war against our nearest ally when one of his towns lies convenient for us, or a territory of land that would render our dominions round incomplete. If a prince sends forces into a nation where the people are poor and ignorant, he may lawfully put half of them to death and make slaves of the rest in order to civilize and reduce them from their barbarous way of living. It is a very kingly, honorable, and frequent practice when one prince desires the assistance of another to secure him against an invasion, that the assistant, when he has driven out the invader, should seize on the dominions himself and kill imprison or banish the prince he came to relieve. Alliance by blood or marriage is a frequent cause of war between princes, and the nearer the kindred is, the greater their disposition to quarrel. Poor nations are hungry, and rich nations are proud, and pride and hunger will ever be at variance. For these reasons, the trade of a soldier is held the most honorable of all others, because a soldier is a yahoo hired to kill in cold blood, as many of his own species who have never offended him as possibly as he can. There is likewise a kind of beggarly princes in Europe, not able to make war by themselves, who hire out their troops to richer nations, for so much a day to each man, of which they keep three-fourths to themselves, and it is the best part of their maintenance, such are those in many northern parts of Europe. What you have told me, said my master, upon the subject of war, does indeed discover most admirably the effects of that reason you pretend to. However, it is happy that the shame is greater than the danger, and that the nature has left you utterly incapable of doing much mischief. For your mouths lying flat with your faces, you can hardly bite each other to any purpose unless by consent. Then, as to the claws upon your feet before and behind, they are so short and tender that one of our yahoos would drive a dozen of yours before him. And therefore, in recounting the numbers of those who have been killed in battle, I cannot but think you have said the thing which is not. I could not forbear shaking my head and smiling a little at his ignorance, and being no stranger to the art of war, I gave him a description of cannons, culverins, muskets, carabines, pistols, bullets, powder, swords, bayonets, battles, sieges, retreats, attacks, undermines, countermines, bombardments, sea fights, ships sunk with a thousand men, twenty thousand killed on each side, dying groans, limbs flying in the air, smoke, noise, confusion, trampling to death under horses' feet, flight, pursuit, victory, fields strewed with carcasses, left for food to dogs and wolves and birds of prey, plundering, stripping, ravishing, burning, and destroying. And to set forth the valor of my own dear countrymen, I assured him that I had seen them blow up a hundred enemies at once in a siege, and as many in a ship, and beheld the dead bodies drop down in pieces from the clouds to the great diversion of the spectators. I was going on to more particulars when my master commanded me silence. He said, 
whoever understood the nature of yahoos might easily believe it possible for so vile an animal to be capable of every action that I had named, if their strength and cunning equaled their malice. But as my discourse had increased his abhorrence of the whole species, so he found it gave him a disturbance in his mind, to which he was wholly a stranger before. He thought his ears, being used to such abominable words, might, by degrees, admit them with less detestation, that although he hated the yahoos of this country, yet he no more blamed them for their odious qualities than he did a guinea, a bird of prey, for its cruelty, or a sharp stone for cutting his hoof. But when a creature pretending to reason could be capable of such enormities, he dreaded lest the corruption of that faculty might be worse than brutality itself. He seemed therefore confident that instead of reason we were only possessed of some quality fitted to increase our natural vices, as the reflection from a troubled stream returns the image of an ill-shapen body, not only larger, but more distorted. He added that he had heard too much upon the subject of war, both in this and some of former discourses. There was another point which a little perplexed him at the present. I had informed him that some of our crew left their country on account of being ruined by law, that I had already explained the meaning of the word, but he was at a loss how it should come to pass that the law, which was intended for every man's preservation, should be any man's ruin. Therefore he desired to be further satisfied what I meant by law, and the dispensers thereof, according to the present practice in my own country, because he thought nature and reason were sufficient guides for a reasonable animal, as we pretended to be, in showing us what he ought to do, and what to avoid. I assured his honor that the law was a science in which I had not much conversed, further than by employing advocates in vain upon some injustices that had been done to me. However, I would give him all the satisfaction I was able. I said there was a society of men among us, bred up from their youth in the art of proving, by words multiplied for the purpose, that white is black and black is white, according as they are paid. To this society all the rest of the people are slaves. For example, if my neighbor has a mind to my cow, he has a lawyer to prove that he ought to have my cow from me. I must then hire another to defend my right, it being against all rules of law that any man should be allowed to speak for himself. Now in this case, I, who am the right owner, lie under two great disadvantages. First, my lawyer, being practiced almost from his cradle in defending falsehood, is quite out of his element when he would be an advocate for justice, which is an unnatural office he always attempts with great awkwardness, if not with ill will. The second disadvantage is that my lawyer must proceed with great caution, or else he will be reprimanded by the judges and abhorred by his brethren, as one that would lessen the practice of the law. And therefore I have but two methods to preserve my cow. The first is to gain over my adversary's lawyer with a double fee, who will then betray his client by insinuating that he hath justice on his side. The second way is for my lawyer to make my cause appear as unjust as he can by allowing the cow to belong to my adversary, and this, if it be skillfully done, will certainly bespeak the favor of the bench. Now your owner is to know that 
These judges are persons appointed to decide all controversies of property, as well as for the trial of criminals, and to pick down from the most dexterous lawyers, who have grown old or lazy, and having been biased all their lives against truth and equity, lie under such a fatal necessity of favoring fraud, perjury, and oppression, that I have known some of them to refuse a large bribe from the side where justice lay, rather than injure the faculty by doing anything unbecoming to their nature or their office. It is a maxim among these lawyers that whatever has been done before may legally be done again, and therefore they take special care to record all the decisions formerly made against common justice and the general reason of mankind. These, under the name of precedents, they produce as authorities to justify the most iniquitous opinions, and the judges never fail of directing accordingly. In pleading, they studiously avoid entering into merits of the cause, but are loud, violent, and tedious, in dwelling upon all circumstances which are not to the purpose. For instance, in the case already mentioned, they never desire to know what claim or title my adversary has to my cow, but whether the said cow were red or black, her horns long or short, whether the field I graze her in be round or square, whether she was milked at home or abroad, what diseases she is subject to, and the like. After which they consult precedents, adjourn the cause from time to time, and in ten, twenty, or thirty years come to an issue. It is likewise to be observed that this society has a peculiar cant and jargon of their own, that no other mortal can understand, and wherein all their laws are written, which they can take special care to multiply, whereby they have wholly confounded the very essence of truth and falsehood, of right and wrong, so that it will take thirty years to decide whether the field left me by my ancestors for six generations belongs to me, or to a stranger three hundred miles off. In the trial of persons accused for crimes against the state, the method is much more short and commendable. The judge first sends to sound the disposition of those in power, after which he can easily hang or save a criminal, strictly preserving all due forms of law. Here my master interposing said it was a pity that creatures endowed with such prodigious abilities of mind as these lawyers, by the description I gave them, must certainly be, were not rather encouraged to be instructors of others in wisdom and knowledge. In answer to which I assured his honor that in all points out of our own trade they were usually the most ignorant and stupid generation among us, the most despicable in common conversation, avowed enemies to all knowledge and learning, and equally disposed to pervert the general reason of mankind in every other subject of discourse, as in that of their own profession. Chapter 6 The Contribution of the State of England under Queen Anne The Character of a First Minister of State in European Courts My master was yet wholly at a loss to understand what motives could incite this race of lawyers to perplex, disquiet, and weary themselves, and engage in a confederacy of injustice merely for the sake of injuring their fellow animals. Neither could he comprehend what I meant in saying they did it for hire. Whereupon I was at much pains to describe to him the use of money, 
the materials it was made of, and the value of the metals, that when a Yahoo had got a great store of this precious substance, he was able to purchase whatever he had a mind to, the finest clothing, the noblest houses, great tracts of land, the most costly meats and drinks, and have his choice of the most beautiful females. Therefore, since money alone was able to perform all these feats, our yahoos thought they could never have enough of it to spend or to save, as they found themselves inclined from their natural bent either to profusion or avarice, that the rich man enjoyed the fruit of the poor man's labor, and the latter were a thousand to one in proportion to the former. That the bulk of our people were forced to live miserably by laboring every day for small wages to make a few live plentifully. I enlarged myself much on these, and many other particulars of the same purpose, but his honor was still to seek, for he went upon a supposition that all animals had a title to their share in the productions of the earth, and especially those who presided over the rest. Therefore, he desired I would let him know what these costly meats were, and how any of us happened to want them. Whereupon I enumerated as many sorts as came into my head, with the various methods of dressing them, which could not be done without sending vessels by sea to every part of the world, as well for liquors to drink as for sauces, and innumerable other conveniences. I assured him that this whole globe of earth must be at least three times gone round before one of our better female yahoos could get her breakfast, or a cup to put it in. He said that must needs be a miserable country which cannot furnish food for its own inhabitants, but what he chiefly wondered at was how such vast tracts of land as I described should be wholly without fresh water, and the people put to the necessity of sending over the sea for drink. I replied that England, the dear place of my nativity, was computed to produce three times the quantity of food more than its inhabitants were able to consume, as well as liquors extracted from grain, or pressed out of the fruit of certain trees, which made an excellent drink, and of the same proportion in every other convenience of life. But in order to feed the luxury and intemperance of the males, and the vanity of the females, we sent away the greatest part of our necessary things to other countries, whence, in return, we brought the materials of diseases, folly, and vice to spend among ourselves. Hence it follows, of necessity, that vast numbers of our people were compelled to seek their livelihood by begging, robbing, stealing, cheating, pimping, flattering, stubborning, forswearing, forging, gaming, lying, fawning, hectoring, voting, scribbling, star-gazing, poisoning, whoring, canting, libeling, free-thinking, and the like occupations every one of which terms I was at much pains to make him understand. That wine was not imported among us from foreign countries to supply the want of water or other drinks, but because it was a sort of liquid which made us merry by putting us out of our senses, diverted all melancholy thoughts, begat wild, extravagant imaginations in the brain, raised our hopes and banished our fears, suspended every office of reason for a time, and deprived us of the use of our limbs, till we fell into a profound sleep, 
although it must be confessed that we always waked sick and dispirited, and that the use of this liquor filled us with diseases which made our lives uncomfortable and short. But beside all this, the bulk of our people supported themselves by furnishing the necessities or conveniences of life to the rich and to each other. For instance, when I am at home, and dressed as I ought to be, I carry on my body the workmanship of a hundred tradesmen, the building and furniture of my house employ as many more, and five times the number to adorn my wife. I was going on to tell him of another sort of people who get their livelihood by attending the sick, having, upon some occasions, informed his honor that many of my crew had died of diseases, but here it was with the utmost difficulty that I brought him to apprehend what I meant. He could easily conceive that a hum-hum, grown weak and heavy a few days before his death, or by some accident might hurt a limb, but that nature, who works all things to perfection, should suffer any pains to breed in our bodies he thought impossible, and desired to know the reason of so unaccountable an evil. I told him we fed on a thousand things which operated contrary to each other, that we ate when we were not hungry, and drank without the provocation of thirst, that we sat whole nights drinking strong liquors without eating a bit which disposed us to sloth, inflamed our bodies, and precipitated or prevented digestion, that prostitute females of yahoos acquired a certain malady which bred rottenness in the bones of those who fell into their embraces, that this and many other diseases were propagated from father to son, so that great numbers came into the world with complicated maladies upon them, that it would be endless to give him a catalogue of all diseases incident to human bodies, for they would not be fewer than five or six hundred, spread over every limb and joint, in short, every part external and intestine, having diseases appropriated to itself, to remedy which, there was a sort of people bred up among us in the profession or pretense of curing the sick, and because I had some skill in the faculty I would, in gratitude to his honor, let him know the whole mystery and method by which they proceed. Their fundamental is that all diseases arise from repletion, whence they conclude that a great evacuation of the body is necessary, either through the natural passage or upwards at the mouth. Their next business is from herbs, minerals, gums, oils, shells, salts, juices, seaweed, excrements, barks of trees, serpents, toads, frogs, spiders, dead men's flesh and bones, birds, beasts, and fishes, to form a composition, for smell and taste, the most abominable, nauseous, and detestable they can possibly contrive, which the stomach immediately rejects with loathing, and this they call a vomit, or else, from the same storehouse, with some other poisonous additions, they command us to take in at the orifice above or below, just as the physician then happens to be disposed, a medicine equally annoying and disgustful to the bowels, which, relaxing the belly, drives down all before it, and this they call a purge or a clister. For nature, as the physicians allege, having intended the superior anterior orifice only for the intromission of solids and liquids, and the inferior posterior for ejection, these artists, ingeniously considering 
that in all diseases nature is forced out of her seat, therefore, to replace her in it, the body must be treated in a manner directly contrary, by interchanging the use of each orifice, forcing solids and liquids in at the anus, and making evacuations at the mouth. But besides real diseases, we are subject to many that are only imaginary, for which the physicians have invented imaginary cures. These have their several names, and so have the drugs that are proper for them, and with these our female yahoos are always infested. One great excellency in this tribe is their skill at prognostics, wherein they seldom fail. Their predictions in real diseases, when they rise to any degree of malignity, generally pretending death which is always in their power. When recovery is not, and therefore upon any unexpected signs of amendment, after they have pronounced their sentence, rather than be accused as false prophets, they know how to approve their sagacity to the world by a seasonable dose. They are likewise of special use to husbands and wives who are grown weary of their mates, to eldest sons, to great ministers of state, and often to princes. I had formerly upon occasion discoursed with my master upon the nature of government in general, and particularly of our own excellent constitution, deservedly the wonder and envy of the whole world. But having here accidentally mentioned a minister of state, he commanded me some time after to inform him what species of yahoo I particularly meant by that appellation. Told him that a first or chief minister of state, who was the person I intended to describe, was the creature wholly exempt from joy and grief, love and hatred, pity and anger, at least, makes no use of other passions but a violent desire of wealth, power, and titles, that he applies his words to all uses, except to the indication of his mind, that he never tells the truth, but with an intent that you should take it for a lie nor a lie, but with a design that you should take it for a truth, that those he speaks worst of behind their backs are in the surest way of preferment, and whenever he begins to praise you to others or to yourself, you are from that day forlorn. The worst mark you can receive is a promise, especially when disconfined with an oath, after which every wise man retires and gives over all hopes. There are three methods by which a man may rise to be chief minister. The first is by knowing how, with the prudence to dispose of a wife, a daughter, or a sister. The second, by betraying or undermining his predecessor. And the third is by a furious zeal in public assemblies against the corruption of the court. But a wise prince would rather choose to employ those who practice the last of these methods because such zealots prove always the most obsequious and subservient to the will and passions of their master. That these ministers, having all employments at their disposal, preserve themselves in power by bribing the majority of a senate or great council, and at last by an expedient called an act of indemnity, whereof I describe the nature to him, they secure themselves from after-reckonings and retire from the public laden with spoils of the nation. The palace of a chief minister is seminary to breed up others in his own trade. The pages, lackeys, and porters, by imitating their master, 
become ministers of state in their several districts, and learn to excel in three principal ingredients of insolence, lying, and bribery. Accordingly, they have a subaltern court paid to them by persons of the best rank, and sometimes by the force of dexterity and impudence, arrive through several gradations to be successors to their lord. He is usually governed by a decayed wench, or favorite footman, who are the tunnels through which all graces are conveyed, and may properly be called, in the last resort, the governors of the kingdom. One day, in discourse, my master, having heard me mention the nobility of my country, was pleased to make me a compliment which I could not pretend to deserve, that he was sure I must have been born of some noble family, because I far exceeded in shape, color, and cleanliness all the yahoos of his nation, although I seemed to fail in strength and agility, which must be imputed to my different way of living from those other brutes, and besides, I was not only endowed with the faculty of speech, but likewise with some rudiments of reason, to a degree that, with all his acquaintance, I passed for prodigy. He made me observe that among the Hunyams, the white, the sorrel, and the iron-gray were not so exactly shaped as the bay, the dapple-gray, and the black, nor born with equal talents of mind, or capacity to improve them and therefore continued always in the condition of servants, without ever aspiring to match out of their own race, which in that country would be reckoned monstrous and unnatural. I made his honor my most humble acknowledgments for the good opinion he was pleased to conceive of me, but assured him, at the same time, that my birth was of the lower sort, having been born of plain, honest parents, who were just able to give me a tolerable education, that nobility among us was altogether a different thing from the idea he had of it, that our young noblemen are bred from their childhood in idleness and luxury, and that as soon as years will permit, they consume their vigor and contract odious diseases among lewd females, and when their fortunes are almost ruined, they marry some woman of mean birth, disagreeable person, and unsound constitution, merely for the sake of money, whom they hate and despise. That the productions of such marriages are generally scrofulous, rickety, or deformed children, by which means the family seldom continues above three generations, unless the wife takes care to provide a healthy father among her neighbors or domestics, in order to improve and continue the breed. A weak, diseased body, a meager countenance, and sallow complexion are the true marks of noble blood, and a healthy, robust appearance is so disgraceful in a man of quality that the world concludes his real father to have been a groom or a coachman. The imperfections of his mind run parallel with those of his body, being a composition of spleen, dullness, ignorance, caprice, sensuality, and pride. Without the consent of this illustrious body, no law can be enacted, repealed, or altered, and those nobles have likewise the decision of all our possessions without appeal. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting Tell Me Improve the Quality. 
You can find me at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature. You'll also find a list of the many benefits you'll receive for being a patron at only $5 a month. Please also find me on Instagram at relaxing literature to stay up to date on giveaways and on Twitter at relaxing lit ASMR to leave your comments, questions, and suggestions for what books you'd like me to read next. Thank you so much for listening.